that will work. Yeah, so you have to sit over there. I don't want to be recording. A recording, and we're going to go live. Three, two, one. All right, good evening. Welcome everybody to our evening webinar to discuss how change happens, hosted by the University of Cambridge Judge Business School Master of Accounting degree program. As a brief administration note, we're going to be hosting questions and answers or questions on slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com, hashtag how change happens. That's slido.com, hashtag how change happens. I'm Alan Jagelinzer. I'm the professor of financial accounting, the head of the accounting faculty subject group at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Our team has developed the Cambridge Master of Accounting program to build our profession's next generation thought leaders who can help navigate the profession through existential change. Today's events, in fact, we're actually hosting this during an impeachment event in the United States, and we've got COVID and all these other events going around us, um, indicate that we're facing multiple catalysts for change in politics, society, and business. All of our courses in our program engage policy level discussion with world leading business advisors, um, including in my change management course, which features the book, How Change Happens, written by our guest speaker this evening, who has studied power ecosystems all around the world in change projects that um, address societal need. I'm joined tonight by Phoebe Cluck, who works on policy advocacy for gender equality, particularly supporting female refugees, and has recent, com recently completed graduate studies in gender development and globalization at the London School of Economics, and by Joe McMullen, who is a senior manager at EY in London, working in support of government policy initiatives and is finishing his final year in the Cambridge Master of Accounting program. Both Phoebe and Joe will moderate the discussion with our special guest, Dr. Duncan Green, who is a senior strategic advisor to Oxfam GB, and a professor in practice in international development at the London School of Economics. In addition to his book, How Change Happens, he's also authored From Poverty to Power, How Active Citizens and Effective States Can Change the World. I wanna thank you all for sharing your time tonight and I'll now hand over to Phoebe and Joe who will begin our discussion. Thanks, Alan, and good evening, everyone. Um, Duncan, as, as Alan has alluded to, you hold and have held a variety of um, positions, jobs. Um, how have you navigated your career journey? Um, thanks, Joe, and thanks, Alan and Phoebe, for inviting me, and hi, everybody. Um, these are these questions which make me squirm in that um, I'm absolute, when my students at LSE ask me this kind of thing, I say, just don't do what I did, right? So I, my, my journey is more like a random walk, at each point, I just did the next thing that looked fun or interesting. Um, I studied theoretical physics. Uh, I then wandered around Latin America as a backpacker, got involved in human rights work, became a journalist, never got qualified in anything. Um, so, so I think it, um, the only thing I think uh, 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 links it all together is just being really selfish and doing stuff that's exciting and interesting rather than worrying about where you're going to be in 10 years time. When you then get to my incredibly advanced age and look back, it all absolutely makes sense, but that's completely misleading. Sorry. Mm. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, that that that's fa that's fascinating because I th I think as as we were sort of preparing for this evening's conversation and and, and looking through all of all of the rules that you hold and have held and, and the books that you've written. For, for me, it's almost like there's, there's a theme of um, tangible human impact that seems to come through. And I think it's really interesting that you say, I've been really, really selfish um, in terms of my career choices when actually that there seems to be a lot of human impact that, that you have. How, how would you describe your purpose I think this is really difficult, actually, to answer because, you know, I've done the kind of jobs that make people at dinner party feel uncomfortable and feel guilty, right? Um, so I work for Oxfam um, and people go, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, as though you've made some huge sacrifice, but actually working for Oxfam has been a huge gas. Uh, you meet fantastic people. It's It really is a privilege. I know that's a cliche, but it really is a privilege. So I think... I think I've I think you're you're right in the sense that I wanted to do things where I can see some results but that you know I was a journalist and I could see some results just in terms of having things published or you know getting impatient with things that are badly organized or wrong so there are themes but um I'm really not Mother Teresa and, and I don't, don't want to give, I, I, I'm quite the opposite. I'm quite a contrarian. So if I'm surrounded by Holy Joe type people, I tend to get quite sort of difficult and stroppy. So I think that's partly kept me a bit, hopefully a bit honest. Um, I, I hate that sort of sanctimonious quality, which sometimes surrounds um, um, my, um, I'm not going to say who, but people I've worked with. Okay. <laughs> How how would you say then that when you how, how do you identify the changes then that you want to make? So if if there are lots of things that you, that you're looking at and thinking right, there are lots of things that could be done differently. Um, how, how do you identify that's that's the change that that I want to invest my time in versus other changes? I'm coming over as a terribly amoral person with these answers, but um, I'm, I'm so in the last sort of 10 years, I've basically been quite a surfer. So, you know, I surf what looks interesting. I see new things coming up. I write about them a bit, but then I move on. And so that's kind of less useful in terms of, I'm trying to think back, you know, to, to why I worked on, you know, topics like child rights in Latin America or, or, the, 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 the move to um, liberal economics in Latin America. And there it was a sense that you wanted to be looking at something that had a potential for change that was, that was important in terms of how Latin America was where I started, how the region was evolving. And I always wanted something to have general resonance. So I tend to work on broad topics rather than, you know, in academia, you have people who've done their, spent their entire life writing about the sugar industry in Michoacan in Mexico, right? And they are never happier than writing another paper about the sugar industry in Michoacan. I, I never liked that. I always wanted to sort of take, to, to, to know a little about a lot rather than a lot about a little, which has its downsides. You feel very anxious most of the time. You feel like an imposter most of the time. But it, the, the upside is that it's really, really interesting. Mm. And, and I think sort of, sort of that, that, that feeling and that personal side of it sort of chimes with one of the questions that 
that we've got um, from from the audience. And it's, do you ever feel overwhelmed with the complexity and the need in change management work? I ought to, but luckily no one has actually entrusted me with doing this to an organization. So I tend to just come in at a very, so there's a classic sort of pattern in, in these two day seminars, webinars, whatever they are, where the first day you go out and, and yeah, you say, what about this, what about that? And you brainstorm and all the rest of it. And then the second day you make decisions and, and that's the really difficult bit. I'm normally only invited for the first day because that's really where I'm happiest. So I like to chuck in sort of things that I've seen out of the side of my eye, seen from other disciplines, from other, bit, other sectors, and just try and bring more oxygen into the conversation. At some point, someone has to say, okay, we've only got this much money and these many people, and we're gonna have to stop doing this, this, and this. I'm rubbish at that. So I think I've been spared the, the, the downsides. In terms of, I suppose, <clears throat> the complexity question, it's only overwhelming if you think you're ever gonna understand it all. If you think you're just going to spot some patterns, but they're only ever going to be partial and there's, you're only going to have a partial understanding, then actually it's quite liberating. Um, you just have to, there's that. I remember when I, um, so this shows you how long ago I studied physics, but basically I studied physics when computers were just coming in. All right. And I went and did a morning on, uh, on these new things called computers. And I thought, these are really boring. I'm ne these are never going to go anywhere. I don't want to do this. And part of the reason I, don't, I didn't want to do that was I couldn't understand how you get from electrons to a program. Whereas I was doing work in other areas of physics where you could understand the entire sequence. I've, I've completely let go of that now. And now I just think that's fine. You just have, you can't expect to understand everything to be on top of everything. You just have to be good at, at surfing, at seeing the shape of things as they shift and responding. So it's a, it's a, there's a great mathematician called Donella Meadows who wrote a book on systems thinking and she talks about learning to dance with the system mm. and, and that's it's that kind of skill which i think matters not being some kind of um philosopher king who understands everything because that's a delusion yeah and 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 picking up then around seeing the shift and and the change happening i think one one of the things that you talk about in your book is around how you change itself is inherently slow and almost akin of if you were to go into a forest or to go into your garden every day you may not see the immediate change that has happened the day before however if you were to watch a time-lapse video you can quite quickly see the seasons change dramatically how how do you keep your finger on the pulse of change and how do you manage your own resilience in that? <clears throat> so I find, so one of the big influences on me as a Korean economist called Harjun Chang, who's a, a friend of mine, uh, who's actually at Cambridge, um, as it happens. Um, and I came across him when I'd just been working on Latin America uh, for years. And, and suddenly it was this revelation um, of both a completely contrasting region which Harjun was writing about in East Asia, which was doing far better economically and the reasons for that. But also the thing he, he really brought to me was um, the, the importance of, a, of, of understanding and knowing something about history. So he was, he wrote a fantastic book called Kicking Away the Ladder, which, and he's, you know, rehearsed those arguments in many subsequent books. 
just saying, well, look, this is how America, the USA actually evolved, actually developed. This is how Germany actually developed. And it's completely different from what they're telling us are the right policy solutions now. And that, that sense of history. So when you look back, you know, we're in the middle of, yeah, I like your time-lapse um, metaphor, because we're in the middle of something now where you just think, oh my God, COVID, nothing's changing. It's all terrible. But that's the time-lapse problem. What you're actually in is a critical juncture, a moment of sudden change. But it'll look sudden when we look back at this in 20 years' time. Right now, it's painfully slow. Just like the Great Depression uh, you know, took 10 years to actually generate major economic change. So I think a sense of history and, and recognizing patterns from history helps you cope with what sometimes feels like very slow change on things like climate change, right? for example. So yeah, if we'd been in the anti-slavery movement, it would have been deeply depressing. It took 50 years to abolish slavery in the UK. And now we see it as a great triumph because we concertina those 50 years into a few stories. And that's what this hopefully will look like when we come back to it on climate change or on COVID. Yeah. So you, you brought up the fact that COVID is a critical juncture and that's something that you speak about in the book. So um, I guess if you would extrapolate on, on why you believe that this is a critical juncture and how do you think that we can use this juncture um, as an opening for change and what might that look like? So why is it a critical juncture? Um, because pandemics tend to be. I mean, again, <laughs> lessons of history, you know, um, uh, fantastic book by Thomas Boliki on the history of pandemics. Uh, Charles uh, Kenny has got another book coming out on the history of pandemics um, at the moment. And uh, I haven't read it yet, so I can't plug it, but I'm sure it's good because he writes well. Um, so you've got this historical idea that pandemics and wars are two of the great drivers of rapid historical change. Um, and the reason they do so is because they throw existing power relations into, into the air, new players arise, new logics and arguments arise, they expose weaknesses in the current system, and they give people a sense of purpose, which they may not have during peacetime. Um, a sense of, yeah, we want, we want to build back better is the current you know, cliche. Um, a land fit for heroes was the World War II you know, slogan in, in the UK. Um, and that means that you've got the opportunity to bring about change. But then if you, want, if, if you want to think about how you do that, then there is no better authority than Milton Friedman. I always like to quote Milton Friedman because no one expects someone from Oxfam to quote Milton Friedman as the father of monetarism. But Milton Friedman had a fantastic understanding of the, the link between shocks and change. And, he said, and the role of academics in particular, he said the role of academics is to have ideas lying around for when a shock happens and then getting decision makers to look at those ideas and say, now we now suddenly the Overton window, that window of what is permissible in public debate has shifted. And we can suddenly talk about things like universal basic income, uh, social protection, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a, a maximum income. Yeah, the, all sorts of things are floating around now. Most of them will never get anywhere, but some of them will. Yeah. So something just following up kind of on that, um, we do sometimes, especially in, in wartime, see like a liberalization happen. Um, and, and specifically, I'm thinking about in the context of gender equality. So women sometimes often um, have greater access to employment opportunities, um, greater social mobility, things like that. And then we also do see often a tightening. Um, so when we are in the build back better kind of stage, um, I'm trying to, I'm just thinking about um, how conservatism, 
conservatism comes kind of back in um, and people say, oh, actually now is not the time for this massive scale change. This is the time to get back to where we were. So kind of as that plays into power, um, how do you, once you've identified who has the power, how do you go about shifting the power? Okay, so <clears throat> two, two observations on that. One is I think there's a really interesting contrast which I haven't read enough about between the gender impact of World War I and the gender impact of World War II. So mm. World War I was followed by big debates on universal suffrage, the roaring 20s, a degree of women's emancipation. World War II was followed by Rosie the Riveter, all the women going back into the home and Stepford Wives, right? Mm. You know, in very broad terms. So, I mean, interesting that they led to such different gender dynamics. One argument that I heard, and this is, we're getting down to the sort of talking in the pub, if we could do that um, mm. sort of level of debate, which was that maybe the, the existence of the Spanish flu made people more ready to take, to, yeah, to, to try something different after World War One, whereas after World War Two, people were very keen to get back to the status quo ante. I don't know. These are all mm -hmm. sort of things which I haven't read about, so I really shouldn't even be talking about. In terms of how you shift the power, I think there's, there's a few things here. One is, um, we always focus on intentional change. Yeah, but uh, I mean, we being activists, people who want to change the world, tend to think that it's up to us. And yet many of the biggest changes happen accidentally or as side effects. So because of demographic change, because of technological change, because of other things. So often our big intentional campaign is a tiny little you know, um, interruption on bigger waves of change, which, which no one is driving. And I think we need to really understand that. Um, I think another question on shifting the power is, it seems to me that activism has become very obsessed with short-term wins. Um, I'm sure it's partly because we have to you know, justify our wages and our program funding and be able to prove, point to a law that's changed or a policy that's changed or something. And that means that we've neglected some of the really big drivers of long-term change, such as social norms. So I think we've actually, you know, the, the level of understanding of why gender norms have changed so much in the last 25 years, still loads of things to do, but huge, huge sort of shifts in the understanding of what is natural, what is normal, what is acceptable in terms of gender difference uh, is, is very thin in the activist world. And I think that's, if you're serious about change, what tends to happen, I think, is people work and work and work on shifting norms. And then a shock happens and it's like a tectonic it's like an earthquake, a tectonic shift where, you know, some of the norm shifts that have been happening suddenly get released into, into politics and into, into visibility. And then we can see something really interesting. So I mean, I was, when you were asking that question, I was thinking, well, COVID all seems like pretty bad news from a gender point of view. Um, yeah. In the, the rise of domestic violence, people shut up with abusive partners, all the other things. But it's quite interesting in terms of generational differences. So you've got suddenly all people my age are just stuck at home, terrified. And the people who are out there doing things are the younger people. So maybe there'll be a shift. You know, finally, the boomers will stay at home and let the next generations, you know, get on with things. Um, so we might see a different kind of shift to the ones we saw after the war. Interesting. There's a question here um, from someone in the comments and they, it's kind of along what we're chatting about. So it says, Winston Churchill is reported to have said, um, never let a good crisis go to waste. Do you think that that is good advice and why or why not? 
Boy, there's a lot of people claim credit for that quote. I thought it was Rahm Emanuel, um, but there we go. Um, Obama's guy in Chicago. Um, I absolutely think it's important. So I think if you're a, if you're an activist, and when I say activist, I don't just mean protesters or NGOs. I mean anybody, you know, like Joe in, in EY or anybody who's trying to change the system from within, from outside, whatever, you know after a few years that change is discontinuous. Yeah, you don't just plug away and change things, that there'll be windows of opportunity and windows of threat. And they often coincide actually, you know, as we're seeing at the moment. So, um, you know, Louis Pasteur um, discovered the germ theory by accident um, in the, he found some cultures growing in a test tube. Um, but he said, but fortune favors the prepared mind. So, so my message to my activism students is, you know, you have to be a prepared mind so you can spot opportunity in crisis. Um, and I think that's like, that, that would probably be one of the biggest messages of my book is, is that that skill and then the ability to respond and the relationships and the ability to get people together is a crucial part of being a successful change maker. And I, and I think as well, some other questions that are coming through and, and just a reminder to everyone um, to go to Slido um, and use the hashtag high change happens so that you can post your questions to to this conversation. Um, two, two questions that stand out from the group are, why does it seem that power often falls into the hand or bad people's hands or the wrong people? And I think the second question that chimes with the conversation that we're just having, when doing international work, how much change effort is affected by culture and language? Ooh. Oh, boy. Excellent questions. Um, so I, if I could eradicate some quotes, the one about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is one of them. Another one is Margaret Mead, change is only ever brought about by small groups of determined people. Both of those I think are um, deeply misleading and deeply unhelpful uh, in terms of activism. Um, so the power one, um, I see power in a very different way. And this, I did, I was actually, I think quite influenced by studying physics all those years ago in that I tend to think in physics terms and I see power as the kind of force field um, of change. It's the or to use a more sort of modern cultural reference, slightly more modern, uh, it's the matrix, right? Power is the matrix of change. And what activists need to do is to get better at making power visible. And in order to do that, you have to actually understand power in a more nuanced way. So there's many different kinds of power. There's a kind of power, I have a colleague at Oxfam called Joe Rowlands who came up with a lovely, simple way of disaggregating different kinds of power. She said, there's power within. That moment when you think, actually I have rights you know, he hasn't got the right to beat me. The policeman doesn't have the right to ask for a bribe and I'm gonna do something about it. So there's a sort of sense of agency and, 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 and rights there. There's power with when people actually get together and say, right, we're not gonna stand for this. You know, we're gonna do something. And then you've got power to influence decisions and allocation of resources and power over others and personal power. There's lots of different kinds of power. So I think it's much better if activists can become power literate and sort of learn to make power visible in the context and then think, okay, so how do we redistribute power in a, in a fairer way than is currently the case than just saying, oh, power is terrible, right? That's just, that doesn't help. So I think that on culture and language, I'm the living embodiment 
of um, a whole lot of problems, okay? And I'm becoming increasingly aware of this. You know, I'm old, I'm white, I'm male, I'm straight. I'm sure there are other sins I've committed and I've forgotten about. Um, and there's a really interesting question about, okay, so yeah, I, I expect most of the people on this call don't have quite as many things to be embarrassed about as me, but they probably have one or two. Um, and then the question is, well, what do you do about that? And I, I, I'm lucky because I get to talk to really interesting people. So I was talking about, I was talking to a, a, a woman who's become quite a friend, really, Akasua and Pofo, who is the president of the African Studies Association of Africa, which I think is a wonderful idea. Because basically African Studies Association is usually based in London, New York, Washington. So some African scholars set up their own, right? And she's the president of it. And so I was doing a podcast with her uh, about decolonizing academia and lots of very worthy topics. And in the end, I just said, look, I'm Pofo, what do I do? I mean, look at me. I'm, you know, what am I going to do? And her advice was great. It was like, step to the side, step to the back, but don't step off. Right? And I've taken that to heart. And I think, you know, as far as you are able to use your position to make things fairer, do it. Um, if people ask me to speak, okay, I've obviously broken the rule now, but um, if people ask me to speak, you know, you try and think, well, actually, am I, do you really need to ask me? There's this other person who doesn't look exactly like me, who's much better placed, and I've signed the, the wonderful pledge never to appear on manals. Do you, are you all familiar with manals, right? Men-only panels, fantastic website where you can send in pictures of manals, and they put a picture of David Hasselhoff doing a thumbs up on it, which I just think is fantastic. Humor is a great weapon in, in activism. Um, so you do what you can um, and you try and step to the side or step to the back. I, I think, you know, I was very grateful for that advice. I have a, a bit of a follow-up question on that. Um, so speaking kind of um, as a Westerner, perhaps um, wanting to engage or engaging in non-Western contexts, how do you engage ethically, whether it be through volunteering or through working? And how do you kind of try to avoid this um, colonial legacy of voyeurism and this, this white saviorism? Oh boy. I mean, I think it's incredibly hard, actually. I mean, um, so there's, I think volunteerism is deeply suspect, but then I'm in a privileged position of being able to go you know, and be shown around by local people who translate for me, who, I'm, who are partners of Oxfam or the LSE. And so, you know, I'm coming at it from a really unfair position. But I think um, if you're going to do that, then think about some things. Think about why aren't you doing it in your own country? Yeah, I, prior to the pandemic, my, my most recent idea for a book was to do a book on how change happens in the UK, because I just realized, I just don't know what's happening in this country, really. really. Um, and it would be really interesting to just take all the things I've learned at Oxfam going all to lots of other countries and just go around four bits of the UK and see what's happening. So, and you know, I hope at some point to revive that. So why aren't you doing it in your own country? What do you think you're bringing, right? I mean, so, you know, um, what are you contributing? Yeah, secondary school um, graduations are going up, university graduations are going up in countries around the world. What skills are you actually bringing? And it might quite likely be that your main skill is going to be speaking English and doing funding applications. Are you happy with that? I mean, fine, if you are, but just don't do the white savior thing. Um, and, and there are some fantastic satirical videos, which I'm happy to share with people, which absolutely nail it if people haven't seen them already. Look on uh, rustyradiator.com for a wonderful set of videos on um, the bad side of aid. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for answering that. 
And, and I think maybe just picking up then on, on that and, and the tension that can be created. So if, if, for example, there are issues and social challenges that individuals see that are particularly advanced. So if we take gender as an example, it's very often spoken about in a binary sense, so male, female, then beginning to think through um, trans rights and bringing that to areas of the world where they may not be as advanced or recognized. How, how do you how do you reconcile the tension between sort of almost cultural moralistic issues? I mean, I don't think there's a right answer on this one. I, I, I really don't. I mean, not all problems can be solved. And I think that, that you've got a real tension between a belief that rights are universal, which, yeah, we're all supposed to, um, you know, touch our forelock to, if we still have a forelock, um, and a commitment to deep listening to what people genuinely feel about their lives. And what if those two things conflict? And isn't it a bit awkward that these universal rights keep changing, keep evolving, keep moving? So I think you've, you've, got, a, you've got a bunch of pieces moving. And all I can say in that really is um, don't think you know <laughs> the answer. Don't think you know what's right. Invest a lot of energy in listening and in being curious and you know so when you know I, I I think people of my age find the the trans debate quite difficult especially the the, the trans versus feminist um, uh, discussions I mean I, I just find those very difficult but at least you know I was lucky enough to to have to interview one of the leading trans activists in the UK Paris Lees on stage you know and and that was absolutely, that was better than reading anything. Uh, that was just like a huge education. So get yourself educated on, on these new issues as they arise. Don't think you have to arrive at an opinion and definitely don't think you have to share that opinion <laughs> um, unless you're, you know, um, so it's a question of respect as well. And, and I call it also evidence-based humility. You know, that, 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 that being humble is not about being a good person. It's not about virtue signaling. It's about recognizing that you don't know and that you can never know because things are just too complex and therefore you should behave with humility because how else are you going to behave mm, that's great so we'll switch we'll switch topics we'll, we'll move away from gender now um we have a question from the audience that says do you perceive declining american influence on the world stage a good or a bad thing and then i think that also um kind of goes with this one which is are you concerned right now about all of the tension around the world and could we perhaps be on the cusp of a global conflict? Do I get any easy questions at any point? Um, <laughs> this is, I feel, I'm sorry, I mean, we're only halfway through and I'm starting to feel like I'm in a viver or something. This is terrible. Um, so declining US influence. I'm going to do it on the one hand, on the other hand, okay? Because I do work at the LSE, so, you know, it's allowed. Um, <laughs> so on the one hand, you know, my background was an activist in Central America where we saw the downside of US influence. We saw a, you know, a, a century of US intervention, often in support of appalling dictators who routinely killed people, abused human rights. And um, you know, I spent uh, much of my 20s um, standing outside the US embassy in Grosvenor Square in London, feeling entirely ineffectual, faced by this giant building with this enormous eagle on top saying, down, down US imperialism. So I totally get that. 
Um, and in that sense, the decline of US influence and the move towards a multipolar world is, is hugely desirable. Yeah, because it could lead to a civilized exchange between different viewpoints and um, a more democratic world system. However, the transition between geopolitical, stable geopolitical orders is, is, is dangerous. You know, um, the shift, the decline in America and the rise of China, for example, could easily trigger conflicts that already is, you know, in terms of American reluctance to accept a peer and Chinese reluctance to be kept down. So the possibilities for things going horribly wrong are great during one of these multipolar episodes. Um, so although I'm in theory, I think multipolarity ought to be a good thing. I'm also very worried about a bunch of things, some of which are very unfashionable to be worried about. Nuclear war. I mean, the uh, increasing numbers of countries with nuclear weapons. Um, it's a miracle that it, they've only been used twice so far. I worry a lot that, that in that increasingly fragmented um, world order, they'll be used again, yeah, in, in some regional conflict uh, in South Asia or somewhere else. So there's a bunch of things which make me very worried about this. Um, so what you would need, and if, if, yeah, when I go, so one of the things I criticize in others is going into if I ruled the world, sort of uh, mode, but going into if I rule the world mode, you'd want a functioning UN which could resolve these problems and, and, and mediate conflict and avoid anything terrible happening. Good luck with that. Well, we've, we, we've just had a question um, come through in the group that has been volunteered as an easy question, Duncan, yes. so you'll be pleased to hear. I don't believe it. But... Well, uh, upon reading it, I don't think it's a straightforward, certainly when I think about it, but hopefully you can shed some light. So the question is, why has Greta Thunberg been so successful in pushing her message forward? What can other activists learn from her work? That's a really interesting question. A lot of it's down to her personal qualities, I think. She's, um, people see her as incorruptible, basically. Yeah, as, a, as a, one of those, you know, Gandhian figures who speak truth to power. Um, uh, timing. Um, and, you know, th there's always a, you know, if, if, if Nelson Mandela had lived 20 years before, 20 years later, we might well never have heard of him. So accident and timing is always really important in how leaders come. come. Um, the surprise value of a, of a young adolescent, um, and I think, I think possibly her, her, her weirdness actually helps too. I mean, she, you know, she's quite, um, she's said she's on, she's got a degree of autism, I think, and, and, and that, that adds to her authenticity, I think, and the, the way, and, and the, the admiration people have for her. Um, but maybe also just people exhausted with initial discourses and feeling wanting to find. So, you know, if you think there've been a series of, of, of uprisings, uh, which were often just kind of expressions of dismay and, and rejection of um, the, the status quo, so Occupy, Extinction Rebellion, uh, the, uh, Friday, Friday Futures, Fridays for the Future, um, uh, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. So there's, there, we seem to be in a period of mass uprisings and Greta uh, was a perfect figurehead for one of them, I think. Mm. And, and I, think, I think 
Similarly, then, one of the other questions that has come through in the group, and I think almost it could be argued that that Donald Trump has had a similar rise to influence, um, albeit maybe in the last five to six years. Why, why, oh, and the question has just shifted, um, why do people fear people like Donald Trump? <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> I'm, I, you know, I'm in the pub again now talking about Donald Trump, okay? I'm not a student of US politics. I think a cup, and I'm not gonna let that stop me. So there's a couple of things there. One is, one of the mistakes we make, I think, is we look back on history and see everything as uh, inevitable and predictable. So, you know, yeah, obviously Trump was gonna come through after the Tea Party was gonna win the election. But actually, Hillary Clinton, if she wasn't such a terrible campaigner, would probably have won in 2016. And Trump would have just, you know, been a footnote. So there's this whole role of accident and circumstance, uh, um, which I think we need to remember. Why do people fear, the question was, why do people fear people like Trump? Yes. I think because he, he, he opens a window into a lot of dark places in, in his supporters. And, um, you know, I, I, I was reading some, you know, watching some of the interviews with the people who, um, I don't know what the correct word is, invaded the Capitol building last week. Last week. And there was some really interesting analyses. There was a lot of there was a lot of very sort of you know rhetorical outrage, you know, defending the constitution stuff. But within that, there was some more interesting things. I think one of them was a piece by Mike Davis in New Left Review, um, saying this was the moment when the online became real life. You know, so you've got a a world of online fantasy, which has been developing over the last few years with QAnon and and the, the, the crazy pedo conspiracy theories and all the rest of it, suddenly emerged and people actually came out in large numbers and said, yes, this is what we believe. And that got me thinking, how, how have we got to that? And has it happened before? And I, I'm sorry, this is gonna be a very, as we get towards the end or towards the last third is always even more rambling than the first third. So you just interrupt me if I'm, if I'm way off topic. But one of the things looking back on history is there have always been periods of hysteria, right? So. In, in Victorian England, there was an entire mass movement dedicated to saving people from being buried alive, where they would go and uh, knock on people's coffins after the, they'd been buried just to check that people had not been buried alive. And this was something like everybody thought it was happening, right? Uh, and, and, and then it went away again. So there have always been these weird moments where, you know, the, the equivalent of Pizzagate and, and the, the pedophiles in the basement in Washington, it's great pizzas, by the way, I've had a pizza there, um, uh, take place. So why has it become so much more politically salient now rather than just a weird period of, national, of hysteria? And I think that probably is social media and the fact that people can now construct entire filter bubbles based on believing that people have been buried alive and not have any contact with anything outside that bubble. But also there's something in there about the death of deference, which I'm really interested in, in that for various reasons, and I'm not sure I understand them, people don't defer to their betters anymore in the way that they used to. Um, and that's opened, and that of course, as a good lefty, I think is great until you see who's, <laughs> who's taking advantage of the death of deference and thinking, oh, actually maybe a bit of deference wouldn't be so bad after all. So um, I'm deeply confused by all this, but I think, um, it's that ability to tap into a zeitgeist, which is pretty ugly, 
which is what Trump's about. I mean, from a Latin American point of view, it was a rubbish coup, all right? I mean, that was not a coup. Um, yeah, if you want to organize a coup, you get the military on side, you choose your moment, you take control of TV and radio, you play the martial music, you know, and you kill as many people as you need to kill, right? And then none of that happened. It was, I mean, five people lost their lives and that's a tragedy, but it was incompetent. It was, it was more of a, a, a selfie opportunity than a coup. If you just watch those people going into Capitol building. So there's something pathetic and incompetent about Trump and his attempts to subvert the constitution, but there is something dark as well, which I really, uh, which is eating away at something. You know, 74 million people voted for him. That is, I think the second biggest after Biden in US history. Mm -hmm. That's not, that, yeah, and a lot of those people are gonna stick around. And, and, and picking up on the theme of this is social media, in real life and that there now seems to be this integration between sort of analog real life and social media life. In terms of future change makers and the fact that lots of people on the call and certainly Phoebe and myself are really keen to make positive change in the right way, how best do we get involved in making that change or even indeed actually taking it a step backwards, determining where we feel our efforts should be applied to support in change, both in the in analog real world, but also digital and online? And that's something I hadn't thought of, which is, is, is very interesting, is that we are now entirely integrated between real life and social media. I mean, just look at us, right? So, so, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's happened now. We are now, you know, um, we are now hybrid individuals, all of us, and that's not going to go away. So so the obvious thing is, um, you know, you're, you're, so I was talking to, 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 talking to my students, uh, some, some students uh, just before this call, who were saying, you know, you've got to go on Instagram and TikTok because we want to have Instagram and TikTok exercises on our class. And I was going, oh, no, no, I don't do either of those. Am I really going to go on TikTok? But I'm going to have to, right? So, so whatever age you are, wherever you are, you've got to, um, you are now hybrid individuals and you've got, to, you've got to play that game and you've got to become literate in all that. Um, in terms of where we put our energy, and I think you were segueing neatly, Joe, into a, sort of another discussion about, activism and I would say <clears throat> what I never did and perhaps I should have done is kind of come up with a set of criteria and um, you know do my analysis and say yes um, you know human rights in Latin America has the greatest potential for change therefore that's where I'm going to dedicate my exercise I mean I did not do that I followed passion and I think there is an argument for following passion it's a lot easier for a start <laughs> than um, actually trying to be calculated um, but also it's, it's there's some, we can't know enough, I think, to make those decisions. I think you, authenticity is underrated um, and, and you've got to choose the things which make you angry. I mean, that's not a bad place to start. And if that's something which is mainstream now, great. If it's something which is not, well, it may become so, especially if you're good at your, you know, what you're doing. So don't worry too much about um, maximizing impact just at the moment. Mm -hmm. Concentrate on finding something that's really worthwhile and do, doing it. I mean. I was talking to some friends of mine who they spent 20 years of their lives. They're Catholics. I'm, a, I'm an atheist, but I worked for the Catholic aid agency, CAFOD, for a few years. And, 
and got huge admiration for, for progressive Catholics. They spent actually 40 years achieving something really bizarre, which was the canonization of Archbishop Romero, um, who was um, assassinated in El Salvador in 1981 or 1980, I think. Um, and, th and it looked really weird to me. And they were working through these obscure Catholic, you, know, you had to prove miracles and all sorts of strange stuff to get somebody turned into a saint. But once you've done it, it become, you know, you've got centuries of recognition of Romero's struggle for social justice. So it's a huge achievement. So when I was talking to these people, I went, oh, I'd love to know your theory of change. You know, that's really interesting. They just laughed at me and said, well, we did it because it was right. What are you talking about? And I did sort of think, yeah, I'm being a bit of an idiot there. Um, I, that wasn't quite the word I used. Um, uh, so I think there is a question about just doing something which you feel is right for you and not worrying too much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe then, Sticking with the the sacred theme, um, one of the things that you've talked about in your book is around the miracle happening, or stop waiting for the miracle to mm -hmm. happen. Um, how 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 do we build in the foresight around ensuring that we are mitigating against? a reliance on a miracle happening, particularly whenever we, we acknowledge that quite a lot of stuff happens by accident or is by wider waves of change that are necessarily out of our control. And that's a really good challenge. So the, the, the cartoon you're referring to is, a, is one of my favorite cartoons. Um, there's two scientists at a, at a, at a blackboard with um, equations, equations, and then in the middle, an arrow which says, then a miracle happens, right? And, and one scientist is saying, could you just give a bit more detail about step two, right? And the reason why I love that is that describes every campaign or program that you see in the NGO world, in the aid sector. So, you know, we will give information to people about how bad education is in their country, and they will change policy and lobby government, right? And there are so many assumptions behind that arrow in the, in the, in the theory of change or the you know, logical framework or whatever it is. So, so the cartoon and the way I use the cartoons to say we have to be better than that and we have to look at the assumptions behind the arrow. But then other bits of the aid sector in particular have gone to the other extreme and think there's no need for an arrow at all or a miracle at all because we can plan everything. And so we have this you know, phenomenal theory of change with every single thing possible in it and, a, and you know, assumptions and you know, key markers and indicators and give us the money and, and all the rest of it. And that's equally crazy because that's not how change happens either. So there's some combination. You have to, you have to accept the existence of miracles, but, but, but reduce the space for miracles as far as you humanly can through conscious thought. And then you, have the, you need to combine the two and be willing to be surprised and to change direction all the time. So the important thing, I think, if you believe in the role of accident in driving change, is to have really good feedback loops and an ability to change direction, dance with the system, be adaptive, not wait till the end of the project before you say, before you say, oh, that didn't work, did it? You know, you have to do that in real time. And that's the way a lot of the more interesting aid programs, which I work on, uh, are moving. Fantastic, thank you. Great. So something um, that we had kind of chatted about when we were preparing for this call was the complexity of 
um, the current system with regard to how many actors are involved. So we've got large actor actors, we've got very small NGOs, we've got you know activists at the grassroots level. Um, and so there's a couple of questions here that I think kind of fit in. So one of them is um, from the audience. It says, do you think it's feasible for for-profit enterprises to shift away from a pure profit focus? So what is the, in the complexity of the system, how do for-profit enterprises kind of fall in there? Um, and then can change happen, this is another one, can change happen in established structures and systems, large companies, for example, or does it have to happen a bit more at the margins? Hmm. Okay, that was about three different questions there. Um, <laughs> so the one on the number of actors, uh, do you think there are too many restaurants in the world? I don't. So uh, there's no particular reason why a large number of actors is a bad thing. Depends, right? So, so um, I, I worry sometimes that the urge to consolidate starts getting a little bit Stalinist. Um, yeah, we will have a plan and it will work. Um, that's not necessarily such a great theory of change either. So, you know, just be thoughtful about talking about numbers of actors. Um, can for-profit enterprises do good? Um, we're all on Zoom. Imagine what we'd have, where we would have been without Zoom or without Zoom equivalents. If the pandemic had hit 40 years ago when I try and explain to my kids just how boring the 1970s was, it, it would have just been so much worse, right? So, so Clearly, there are social benefits, human benefits, emotional benefits um, that come from for-profit companies. But I think, <clears throat> I, I guess maybe a, another a slightly different question is, can a for-profit enterprise consciously seek non-profit um, benevolent impacts? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's quite a complicated question to answer. I think it can clearly give a bit of money to, to a charity, so you can do it at the margins. Uh, I've worked for many years with big garment companies and supermarkets who are trying to actually introduce ethical considerations into their supply chains. Um, uh, you know, trying to uh, eliminate child labour, trying to get minimum wage paid, trying to get wait, trying to get contracts paid, um, and they were clearly doing something that was ethical. But actually, one of our arguments was this shouldn't be a question of ethics, this should be a question of law. So lots of companies obey the law, and the laws are often designed to achieve ethical objectives. So in that sense, yes, all companies pursue ethical objectives, but it's not voluntary. It's, it's, it's part of the system in which they operate. So all, all companies need a license to operate, a social license to operate, and in return for that, they have to meet certain minimum standards. So I guess I'm more comfortable with um, that but then I have seen, but then one of the things that's interesting when you get groups of companies together is that they start pushing the boundaries on things. And they, so yeah, the, the, the argument in the NGOs is often, do you support voluntary standards or do you support law, you know, legal obligation? But what I saw in a thing called the Ethical Trading Initiative was a group of companies doing something that was voluntary and ethical and then saying, this isn't fair. We need a law on this so that all the other companies have to do that. So there's an interesting inter interaction between the voluntary and, 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 and the legal. Can you achieve change in large companies? Yes, all the time. Think how many bloody books are written about achieving change in large companies. Um, uh, some companies go to the wall, some companies re, you know, rekindle and, and, 
revive themselves. Um, so yes, you can achieve change in large companies. Can large companies become major humanitarian or development organizations? I have my doubts. The ones that do it most, I may get into trouble with Joe on this one, are the large management consultants. And um, I think there are very big constraints on what they can and can't do. And they're always aware of those constraints um, in terms of how they get involved. But then I'm just making the argument for giving all the money to Oxfam. So you shouldn't trust me. <laughs> so, so going back briefly to kind of the complexity conversation yeah. um, and, and definitely understanding, you know, kind of the free market approach to more actors, potentially better. Um, how do you kind of talk about or how do you think about the potential inefficiencies that are brought up in that way? So perhaps, you know, five um, different small NGOs operating in the same community, all applying for the same funding um, in, in that way. So uh, will they take care of themselves potentially, but, but is that harmful maybe in the long term? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, one of the drivers for Oxfam used to be a much more sort of scattered uh, collection of Oxfams from different countries. And then someone pointed out that there were six Oxfam offices in Addis Ababa. And did this really make sense? Right. And so there's now been a process of consolidation, um, very painful, um, but getting there. So I think we only have one office in Addis now. So that's good. Um, so I suppose that this is where the, the analogy with companies breaks down, because if you have five NGOs competing, um, they're much less likely to go bust than five restaurants. So the problem is the market, you don't, you have the creation, not the destruction in the, in the NGO sector or in the aid sector. And therefore, I suppose, therefore, there's a better, there's an argument for regulation, there's an argument for consolidation. Um, but there was a really interesting, uh, there's a podcast called Rethinking Humanitarianism. I mean, it's much more interesting than it sounds, believe me. Um, <laughs> it's not a great title. But they had a really interesting debate on this where one of the speakers and the two speakers from the aid sector on these big emergency responses, you know, earthquakes, famines, this kind of conflicts. One of them was saying, yeah, you've got, you know, if you have five big international NGOs in a country, you're wasting millions of dollars. They're all, they've each got their HR person. They've each got their finance director. They've each got their country director. Let's have one. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, then, and release that money for helping people or for channeling it through local NGOs. The other person was saying, yeah, actually, why don't you just get smaller and have a modular system where people come to, where different, lots of small organizations come together to achieve a particular aim and then dissolve. The problem is having them so permanent. That's, that's the waste. And I, I mean, they, they both had points, I thought, but I kind of, but then the modular one, the, the host said, so you're talking about a kind of Airbnb thing, right? Um, and he went, oh, no, no, we can't have that. So, because Airbnb is too big. So, so if you did have a modular system, eventually you'd get a platform coming up, just like Airbnb um, or, or, or yeah, Uber or something, which would become the Airbnb of all these little NGOs. And then the problem would recreate itself. So I think wherever there is money, there is, a con the, there is power and there is a tendency towards concentration of financial power, which comes with political power. And that does need some kind of oversight, regulation, control to, to stop that process of concentration happening. Great. Fantastic. And, and I think actually there's, there's a question, um, there are two questions that have come through that sort of 
that chime to the themes that we've just touched on. So if you could go back to the beginning, knowing what you know now, the question has just shifted. Uh, if you could go back to the beginning, knowing what you know now, what would you focus on today for maximum effect? For example, environment, equality, democratization. And there's been another query um, come through around big tech as well. What beginning are we talking about? My beginning, the beginning of the universe? I mean, <laughs> I, so I, I read it as the beginning of the universe, but I, I feel, Duncan, um, given that you are our guest speaker, you can choose at any point in time yeah. to be the beginning. <laughs> I've, got, I've got real issues with amino acids, and I think that is where it all went wrong. You know? um, no, okay, uh, I'm going to go back to my beginning. So, um, oh, I mean, that's, that, in a way, that's a completely illogical uh, impossible question. I've just said right at the beginning, there was no plan. I followed what was exciting at the time. And you're now asking me to be a different person, which is this kind of monster planner person who's got this great sort of analytical, you know, understanding of change. And this is where I'm going to invest my efforts. Um, so I became an activist, I suppose, in 1980-81. And the big threats at that time were the United States, in Latin America, nuclear war. Um, I ended up keeping London nuclear free for Ken Livingstone for a year, successfully, I might add. Um, uh, and the and and the risk of the crumbling of the Soviet Union precipitating something nasty. This end of uh, bipolar stability into something else. Um, I guess if I was clairvoyant in 1981. I'd have probably gone on climate change. But, you know, you boy, you had to be really, really brilliant to see that coming. But yes, there were people already talking about it. Um, Mrs. Thatcher, interestingly, was one of the first political converts on climate change. She was a chemist, but she studied chemistry. And she, um, she picked it up before anybody else in, in, the, in the UK political establishment. So I would have been a pre-Thatcher climate change activist, probably. Um, there are already lots of men um, involved in uh, feminist activity, not necessarily helpfully, so I wouldn't have done that. Uh, yeah, this is too big a question, sorry, but um, I'll go with climate change just to just to end the question there, uh, I think. Okay, I, I think one of the things that you touched on was around finding your passion, and I think this sort of chimes to like the sort of a theme of questions around it, advice to, to the audience. Yeah. Um, in terms of finding your passion um, and sort of talking about what makes you angry and, and doing something about that, what, what is it today that, that makes you angry? I think, I'm not a very angry person, sorry. I'm not a very angry person. I, I'm offended by things. I'm very British, you know, so I'm, I'm sort of mildly offended by things or, or quite seriously offended by things. I mean, it's hard not to be offended by inequality. I mean, the, the, the extraordinary uh, disparities, the stuff that Oxfam's done on, you know, the eight richest men in the world have the same wealth as the 3.5 billion poorest people. Um, yeah, that, that's just completely unjustifiable and people have stopped justifying it actually. And so I think that argument's been won. So I'm angry about that. I'm angry at waste. I'm angry at, you know, what's going on with schooling at the moment with 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 uh, you know poverty in the uk um so i mean it, it's 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 stupidity and waste and unnecessary suffering 
um, will should continue to anger you. Um, but they take place in so many different forms and so many different ways. I think, you know, um, that's where, and I think one of the big questions activists have to decide early on is, is this gonna be about my personal experience or is it gonna be about their personal experience? And I guess I, I was slightly, I think I was slightly deceitful in that I decided my activism was gonna be about their personal experience. So even though I was deeply alienated from, well, precisely because I was so deeply alienated from what Mrs. Thatcher was doing in the UK, from the collapse of the British left, I found my cause over there in Latin America. And I don't, I find that questionable now. I think, you know, you've, everything looks so much more black and white, so much more straightforward when it's a long way away. Um, and it makes you lazy, uh, it makes you angry and it makes you fired up, but I'm not sure it makes you really question what's going on. And then I, I sort of had to re-educate myself over years of writing and studying on Latin America to, to come up with more nuanced questions, I think. Brilliant, thank you. So one question I think that kind of speaks to um, what we've been talking about, about anger and following the things that anger you or the things that are, you are very passionate about is what advice do you have to activists um, to avoid burnout? Yeah, good, good question. Um, <clears throat> find out the stuff, recognize the stuff that derails you. Right. Don't think you can do everything. So, you know, various stages. Um, I, I basically learn from humiliation. Those are the most powerful moments of, of, of education. Personal humiliation, the deeper, the better. Um, and, you know, you find out things like, actually, I can't write campaign reports. You know, I, I tried to write a big campaign report for Oxfam and it was a disaster. And they, they would have sacked me. Only too many people were reading my blog. So they had to changed my job description and we decided to call me a strategic advisor because no one knows what that means, right? And that allowed me to carry on blogging. So I should have known that I couldn't do that, that I couldn't write that with the kind of verve and anger that a campaign report requires. Um, so if some, uh, the other thing I hate is fighting. I'm actually a total conflict avoider. Um, so if I get into a really snarky battle on Twitter or uh, the blog, I lose, I can't sleep, I'm, I'm a complete mess, you know, so I really shouldn't do that. I shouldn't write nasty book reviews if I'm not prepared to have a fight with the author. Um, so I keep reminding myself, you know, don't, um, one word phrase, hippie punching, don't do hippie punching if you can't take what comes next. Um, so, you know, know your limitations and, and manage yourself. Um, you know, don't put yourself in situations which are gonna um, derail you. Don't mistake overwork for effectiveness. So in the NGO sector, there is a cult of busyness where, you know, um, and it goes back, you know, I remember at college, the people in the, in the international Marxist group, I was not a member, they used to have things which we call political coughs. So they had a political cough in that they were in meetings all the time, worked all the time. So they always had a cough. They were always ill. They always had a cold. They never ate properly. Um, so that is not effective activism. And that look of exhaustion that comes over my colleagues' faces when I mention something new and interesting, and then you just, they say, oh, I'm sorry, I've just got too many emails. That is not effective activism. You've got to be, maintain a space for curiosity. You've got to stop working sometimes and go for a walk, if you can still go for a walk. Um, and I'm continuing the line of heresy. Um, enjoy yourself. Don't be embarrassed about enjoying yourself. You know, um, being tired and bored doesn't make you very effective. So I think 
you know, I, I think you do have to, I suppose the, the current fair for it, um, phrase for it, which I find slightly nauseating is self-care, but this is, these are forms of self-care, um, which I think are, are, are actually worthwhile. Brilliant. One of, one of the things that, that you said there, Duncan, was around remaining curious. Yeah. And I'm curious to know um, what, what are the inputs or what, what are the informational inputs that you have that, that keep you interested? Like, what, what do you read? Who do you look to? Who are the change makers? Who are the movers, the shakers and, uh, that you keep your eye on? Okay. So in terms of being systematic, I use a good old fashioned RSS feed, which I understand no one under 90 uses anymore, but I find it very helpful. Um, and every morning, my first look is at the 30 or so pieces on the RSS feed from a bunch of highly reputable people, I, you know, sources, think tanks, NGOs, individuals who I rate. Right. So, so I wake up in the morning and I have bluffers rights by eight o'clock. I can say, oh, did you see that piece this morning? Which is great in terms of you know, terrifying your colleagues. So that, I think Twitter is fantastic. I love Twitter uh, as a source of links, not as a source of snark. I don't try not to join in all that stuff. But actually most traffic, at least on my Twitter feed, is really interesting and useful. So, you know, um, somebody got in touch and, and asked me, what is, um, are there anything, anything's written about how you do this adaptive management sort of issue in trans-border issues, trans-boundary issues, like involving more than one country? I had no idea, so I just put it out on Twitter. And I've got like, yeah, half a dozen really interesting sources and links. So isn't that great? So you've got that. But then the other one I think is just, and this is a, during the course of a week, I'll have four or five interesting conversations with people who get in touch and just want to chat. Um, so on Monday, I had a chat with a, a really interesting guy, Rwandan Kenyan, who I've been in touch with a few times about whether we should work together on in the future. And those conversations, if you look on them as the highlight of the week rather than a drain on your timeline, you find you've got really good motivation and new ideas. Um, and then there's an extra thing if you're a blogger that you become a bit like one of those columnists who writes about their family in that, you know, if you're a blogger and you're having an interesting conversation, you're going, ooh, let's take some notes, this could be good, this could be a blog. So I do that as well. And that means that you then think through why that conversation was interesting. So I'm gonna you know, stay with, uh, it's a valid thing to do. I might well write a blog on this. I'll have to go back and look at the, the, the YouTube feed if it's still around. Um, because those conversations generate new ideas and that's something that you should, you've got to capture. The, 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 the loss or the mistake is to think that was an interesting conversation and then just let it go and it's gone and you're back to what you were doing before. That's a real waste. Brilliant, thank you. So I am gonna read a question here from the audience again. Um, so this one says, how effective, and it, this is something that personally resonates with me. Um, how effective is speaking truth to power as a change tool? Sometimes it seems to make things worse for the change effect, or effort, sorry, excuse me. Good question. So one of my, one of my I have cartoons for quite a few things and one of my favorite cartoons is on speaking truth to power. So it's um, two medieval peasants walking past a castle battlement. And on the castle battlement is a severed head on a spike. And one peasant is saying to the other, he spoke truth to power, All right? 
So um, it's better if you can see the cartoon, but it's a really, it's really nice. So, so speaking truth to power is a tactic, not a lifestyle choice, I guess I would say. So if it's a lifestyle choice, if you just say, I'm angry and I'm going to speak truth to power, that's fine, but that's therapy. That's not activism. Um, if you're going to speak truth to power as part of a, uh, an effort to change something specific, then absolutely great. And people are very heroic in doing that and take great risks. Mm. However, I'm, I'm, I'm going to argue, argue with myself. I hope that's okay. The, the Romero conversation that I mentioned earlier was about people who, who did things because they were the right thing to do. And so there's a risk about being too deliberate about, you know, you speak truth to power because you're angry and because you feel it's the right thing to do is the way to do it. Not because, oh, I think today I'll speak truth to power, but tomorrow I'll be really weasley. Um, <laughs> it's not gonna be very effective. So I think there's a real, there's a tension there. I, I'm not sure what I think, but I do get frustrated when people think just speaking truth to power is enough. Those Romero people did a lot more than speak truth to power. They were amazing advocates. They lobbied the Pope when they weren't supposed to. They did all sorts of things which were very naughty and they got results. So, you know, I think that's, um, it's not enough. Yeah. It's not I a substitute. It's not a substitute for activism. Yeah. I'd say that's something I'm, I'm struggling with in my own life, which I think a lot of people are as well. Just being very angry and feeling, you know, very compelled to um, speak out about things, but also not having maybe as much direction um, or, or strategy as they might need to have in that moment. Yeah, and you've probably seen that, the, the interview with Barack Obama about calling out and call out culture. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm with Barack. Yeah. Um, another question, and this one is a bit more maybe specific um, to me, maybe a bit more selfish, but um, something that I've noticed from, from wanting to be in this space and looking to formally join the space in a career role is that um, it's very difficult in some regard to join these organizations without experience. And then it's very difficult to get experience without being in these organizations. So how do you feel about that conundrum? It's almost like a catch-22, isn't it? It is. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it's just so unfair. I mean, you, have, you need experience to get experience. So how do you start getting experience? I mean, um, so there's all sorts of ways people have done that over the years. Um, uh, there's doing a master's and ending up doing consultancies with people as part of the masters and things you have LSE we try very hard to get people in the room with future job type sectors you know as consultants that's doing sort of free work for them there's uh which may can sometimes work um some of my students are now doing high-powered things at the OECD based on that you know but they were going to they're probably going to be there anyway um internships uh a minefield uh, and if I say anything about internships, I'm going to get jumped on by uh, the uh, uh, people who think that it's basically slave labor, um, which you have to see they have a point. I mean, the way I can justify it is when you're a student, you pay to, to get somewhere. When you have a job, you get paid. And the internship is the bit in the middle. <laughs> but I'm not sure if that's really you know, um, um, ethical. But, um, but if you are going to intern, and that will be, yeah, it's highly unequal, highly unfair. You need the bank of mum and dad to do it. If you are going to do it, do it consciously. 
demand a contract, know your value, always know your value. You're doing something for people, whether you're paid or not. So you want, you want, a, you want your name on something, a product, something that's going to boost your CV. Don't be desperate. <laughs> however, however desperate you feel, don't be desperate, you know, on the, on the outside. Um, one of the things that I think is really useful is going to work for a different sector. So if you're an activist uh, in Oxfam, if you're one of our campaigners, you really want to have colleagues who've worked in banks, who've worked in government, who've worked in um, management consultants, who've worked in targets for your advocacy. So although we love people who've worked in orphanages, you know, and we, we feel huge fellow feeling, if they're in an interview and they're up against someone who's just come from the Bank of England, we might just choose the Bank of England because they'll know how that decisions are made in that institution and we want to influence them. So think about, but of course, if you go and work for a bank, within two years, you're going to be earning so much that you're never going to come and work for an NGO. So you have to be quite deliberate about whether you're going to do that or not um, uh, and how you acquire marketable skills. Um, there's umpteen things on my blog. Uh, I've, I've failed to plug the blog so far from Poverty to Power, but there are umpteen. Every time we have a, a, a careers discussion at LSE, I turn it into a blog. So if you just do jobs, on, 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 on the, there's, there's lots of really interesting conversations with people in, who've ended up in different bits of the aid business with their top tips for people just starting out. And, and in terms in terms of those top tips, hold on, I'm getting abuse from my wife. How long is this going on for? I, I think we're just about to round up um, okay. in the next. Just give me a moment, and I'll go tell her to stop shouting if that's all right. I'll be right back. Okay. I think it's a really interesting discussion so far. Yeah, it is definitely. I'm very happy to be here. Wife, <laughs> perhaps. Damn it! I didn't turn off the mic. No mind. I didn't swear. That's all right. Okay. So this. See how authentic this is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she can eat potatoes. Right. I, I think I think then re really just th thinking through and, and rounding up in in terms of the changes that that you have been a part of Duncan, what's the one change that stands out as the proudest one that you have been involved with? So I suppose. Yeah, okay. I mean, involved with in a very, very minor role, right? So, so just, you know, not claiming attribution. I've always been an incredibly minor player. Genuinely, I'm not, this is not false humility. Genuinely minor player in all these things. I'd say two. One is most recently at Oxfam, the whole work around Davos and inequality, I think, has been, has been a sort of effective piece of norm shifting. Uh, to use the jargon, on um, the extreme levels of inequality and the fact that people need to take this seriously. And that's, you know, I've, I've hardly had anything to do with that except just amplifying brilliant research by colleagues and brilliant campaigning by others, other colleagues. So that's one. One I was more deliberately involved in, I suppose, back in the day was um, one of my first, so I, I entered the NGO scene quite late, the, the development NGO scene quite late, uh, as I was about to turn 40. And one of the first things my employer, CAFOD, uh, 
did was send me to this really boring international meeting just to get a sense of what the debates around globalization was. And it was the WTO summit in Seattle, um, which collapsed in tear gas and rioting and was absolutely huge fun. And I thought, uh, yeah, I thought, wow, I'm really glad I'd chosen this, this job. Um, but over the next kind of six or seven years, you had a really interesting process whereby people were critiquing a very crude, liberalize everything form of globalization, which was just trying to tear down trade, uh, trade regulations around the world to the benefit of the powerful and, to the, uh, uh, and in a way that would damage the less powerful. And I was involved in a whole bunch of things around uh, the WTO agenda, the Doha round, as it was called. It seemed so important to us at the time. And um, uh, working with Hajin Chang, the Korean economist, about the lessons of history in terms of liberalization being something you do when you've developed, not at the start. You know, it's an outcome of development, not an initial condition, this kind of thing. And we were part of driving the WTO into, I suppose, a, process, a period of paralysis. Now, people now say it's terrible that the WTO is paralyzed, and I, I can see that. But actually, at the time, it was, a, it was a good and necessary thing to do. And I suppose that's probably the thing I've been most involved with. Bit wonky. Sorry. No, that's great. So I think that brings us here to the end. So, um, Joan, I just want to say thank you again for taking some time this evening to speak with us. It was really, really lovely. Um, to have this forum to, to speak with you. It's been exhausting and hard work. And I'm now gonna go and apologize to my wife and have a drink, I think. Probably not in that order. Okay. <laughs> that sounds great. And I, it, and I wanna echo thanks. Uh, thank you, Duncan. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Phoebe, for joining us. And thank you everybody for watching. Um, we're gonna have more of these types of sessions because we're in a state where we can actually do collective learning across this sort of method. So anyway, everybody stay safe. Thank you. Have a good night. And we appreciate your time, Duncan. Okay. Night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.